Okay, yeah, it is good to be here this morning, be able to worship together. And, um, we, I, I just appreciate um, Andrew's devotions this morning. You know, it is hard to, it is hard to, to make sense of everything in life. So, why do the people in Afghanistan suffer so much? Why are they suffering so much? Why does God allow that to be, to take place there? And, and then, you know, why does, um, you know, we have needs within our own congregation. Uh, why does Matt need to be in the hospital, be in rehab? And, uh, and so, it's a blessing to be here this morning, to be able to rejoice in the Lord. Um, we certainly have good reason to count his blessings, count his blessings in our lives, and be able to, um, to worship him in that way. I'd like to continue with our study on David. This morning, several times we have David identified in scripture as a man after God's heart, a man after God's own heart. And uh, I know it's been a little while since we talked about David, but what did we give as a definition for a man after God's heart? A man who what? A man or a woman who what? That's right. It's so it's easy to just um, sometimes just make a list. Let's just make a list of what a man after God's own heart does. Let's just make some lists. But we think about we think about uh, David's life. David wouldn't fit into a lot of lists that we wouldn't want to make, would he? probably wouldn't fit into some of these lists that we want to make. He made a lot of mistakes in his life. Made it, he did a lot of good, a lot of things right. Did a lot of things right. We're going to be looking at some of those this morning. Also, also looking at some of his humanity this morning as we think about uh, David's life. But, um, but you think about a man's desires or a woman's desires their goals, their ambitions in life. And I think this is where David fits into, David fits into the definition of a man after God's, God's heart, one who loves what God loves and hates what God hates. It didn't, that, those kind of ambitions didn't translate into a perfect life for David, did it? didn't translate into a perfect life. But it did translate into, a, into, a, into the life of a man who really desired what God wanted for him. A man who, in, in, in the mistakes he made, a man who was truly repentant, a man who was truly repentant. And um, we compare David's repentance and Saul's kind of repentance, and we see a big difference in the way they responded to their mistakes. Big difference. This morning, then, we would like to kind of shift gears a little bit here in David's life. And so 
We're looking primarily at the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel. So we have a, quite a bit of material to cover here. And uh, we're looking at the, primarily at the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, looking at David's life. But David um, had been uh, fleeing from Saul. He was living in the wilderness and uh, probably in the wilderness for eight or 10 years, fleeing from Saul. He was never able to come to the house of the Lord for worship. And, uh, and so we have that longing coming through in, this, in numerous of the Psalms that he wrote. He longs to go to the house of the Lord and worship there. And he's not able to because he's running from Saul. But uh, I'd like to begin by just noting a few things here in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, chapter 1. So we have Saul's death and the death of Jonathan and the death of many, many thousands of men in Israel that have fallen and uh, they, um, Israel has been conquered by the Philistines. Israel has been conquered by the Philistines. And so let's look at a, a few things here. Um, David then hears about Israel's defeat by the Philistines. He hears about uh, Saul and Jonathan's death and uh, the many others who, were, who died. And it says in chapter 1, verse 17, uh, David lamented with this lament over Saul and over Jonathan and his son. So you go... Um, uh, verse 19, it says, talking, David talking about Saul, the beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. They were both, those places were both cities of the Philistines. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, and lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. And so, you know, when I think of uh, David and, um, and Saul and the years of David running from Saul, it, it just, it's amazing to me that, that uh, David is able to address Saul as the beauty of Israel. The beauty of Israel. I think, I think this, this, um, this image of Saul is connected to uh, also the fact that, that David spared Saul's life twice while he was fleeing from Saul. So David, had a, David had a very interesting, unique concept of Saul as king. In spite of the fact that he was suffering under him, God, um, David was able to see um, Saul as being anointed by the Lord, as being the one who was God has, was designating as king, and <coughs> David responded to that in a, in a good kind of way. I had a cold this week, so you might have to put up with my sniffles a little here this morning. Verses 23 and 24, Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they are not divided. They are swifter than eagles. They are stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with scarlet and with other delights, who put on ornaments of, of gold upon your apparel. Uh, a very elevated, David had a very elevated, a high view of 
Saul and Jonathan, uh, in spite of the fact that he was suffering under him. And I, uh, yeah, to be able to have that kind of, um, to have that kind of view of our authorities and our and those in government is amazing. To be able to do that, I, uh, I, yeah, I find in my own life that I, uh, at least right now, I, I need to learn from that. <laughs> I need to learn from that. It's, I need to learn from that in our own country. We kind of we have a timeline here of David's uh, life uh, in in his age, and uh, I'd like to just notice that just a little bit here at the beginning as kind of an introduction here. So, uh, chapter five, uh, verse four. David was thirty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned forty years. And so, we believe David, as he left the wilderness, came back into the land of of Judah. Uh, according to, I think it's chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, David uh, inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And God, the Lord said, Go up to Hebron. Go up unto Hebron. David went thither. But notice here, notice here, it says that the men of Judah, it says that the men of Judah anointed him king. And so, in spite of the fact that David would have had the right to come into Hebron and come into the land of Judah and proclaim himself king, after all he was anointed, he allowed the men of Israel to do that. And so the men of Israel anointed um, David king. And this was the second time now that he was anointed. He was anointed by Samuel as a boy possibly 13 or 15 years old as a boy he was anointed and then later now we find him anointed as a king again when he came into Jerusalem and was king over all Israel he was anointed a uh, king again so David was anointed as king three different times so we have David becoming king in Hebron when he was 30 he was king in Hebron for seven and a half years and so that puts him to 37 when he becomes a king over all Israel. I think some of these things are, are significant when you think about David's life and so we, we can co kind of go backwards in his life and go forward in his life and it says he was king for 40 years so that puts him to being a king until he was 70, 70 years old so from 30 to 70 he was king seven and a half years in Hebron uh, just as king of Judah and then the rest of the time 33 years in uh, Israel as, uh, as king and, um, and then if you put some other things together yet um, it, it, would, it would appear as though uh, David, um, David's prime years of being king were from the time he was 37 until he was 50 from the time he was 37 till the time he was 50, which is about 13 years. And so most of what we're doing this morning is we're going to be talking about David during those uh, 13 years. Uh, David, um, we look at these uh, uh, chapters here uh, several times. Uh, so David is a, is a tremendous example for us in this. Uh, several times we read that David inquired of the Lord. 
David inquired the Lord. And so uh, that is a phrase that comes through several times. Also, we find that the men of Judah anointed David as king. The men of Israel anointed David as king. And so David was not just a, a free roamer that uh, kind of uh, claimed himself king, but he was, um, yeah, he was willing to, um, to allow uh, God to call him into these various positions of leadership that God wanted him to be in. Let's, uh, if you look at uh, 2 Samuel then chapter 8, uh, we have uh, David, if you think about some of David's accomplishments through this time, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8, we, we just kind of get a glimpse of some of this uh, as we go through here. But uh, David, during these years, was, um, was very much in tune with the Lord. He was very much in tune with the Lord. We have uh, numerous psalms that were written uh, during, this, during this time. And uh, David was very much in tune with the Lord. At the same time, we see that God's blessing in David's life during this, we'll be talking about this a little later, God's blessing in David's life also, also brought some temptations. God's blessing also brought some perils to David's life. And uh, we want to notice a few of those things too. But David came into the land of Israel. Um, the land of Israel was a total disaster under Saul's leadership. Uh, many of the enemies were still oppressing Israel. The Philistines were coming in. The Ammonites were coming in. Uh, the Syrians were oppressing Israel. And so there was enemies from every side. They were coming in. They were oppressing Israel. They were keeping Israel from really being the kind of nation that God wanted him to do. And Saul didn't have the courage. He didn't have the connection with the Lord to be able to defeat the enemies. <coughs> and sometimes you wonder why, why God allowed or why God even commanded Israel to totally annihilate some of these people. They came in and just totally annihilated them. They killed like all the men and the women and the animals in some of these in some of these um, cities that they conquered. But if you go back to um, Exodus, um, and I'm, I don't have the verses for this, but if you go back to Exodus, I believe that uh, God is using Israel to bring judgment on some of the Canaanite worship uh, for, the, for the Canaanites for their, for their, um, their worship of idols. And some of the Canaanites, uh, their idol worship was extremely corrupt, uh, very, very much anti-God. And they were using immorality and all kinds of evil in their idol worship. And some of this had been going on for hundreds of years. And God, <coughs> I think God wanted Israel to bring judgment on them because of this. And so... We read, we read of, of several places, and even for, from David, we read that, that he did not um, destroy the people, but rather put them in subjection to him. And so they, 
instead of destroying the people, he would make them pay a high tax, or he would make them work for him. And so economically, it was better to conquer a people and have them work for you or pay you taxes than it was to just destroy them. And so David, I think in some ways, maybe fell into that trap too, but we have um, the children of Israel earlier, even under Joshua, they did that. And, uh, and these Canaanites then became a snare for the children of Israel because the children of Israel and the Canaanites were living together in the same communities, maybe on the same farms, and the Canaanites were an evil influence on the, on the Israelites and led them into idol worship. I don't think it was out of place for God to have Israel as a judge on the Canaanites for their wickedness. I don't think that was out of place. In the Old Testament, God would have done that. And so we have all these enemies coming in, oppressing Israel under the reign of Saul. But, but when we look at David's reign, uh, David was a very, very magnificent military man. He was a magnificent military man. He was an organizer. He was a warrior himself. And he was battle savory. And he was able to go in to an area and just, you know, conquer the people. And so when you go through chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8 talks about the Philistines. And uh, verse 2 talks about Moab. And all of these enemies of Israel were then conquered and um, most of them did not cause Israel very much trouble after David dealt with them. Most of them didn't cause Israel very much trouble after David dealt with them. And so David was a man of war, and many, many wars took place during David's life. In fact, when David was, um, was first king in Hebron un under uh, a king over just Judah, there was war between the house of David and the house of Saul. And the house of Saul gradually became weaker until Abner, the captain of Israel, working against David, decided, you know what, I'm going to join David. I'm going to join David. And so we have Abner coming over to David's side. But David was very, very instrumental in bringing peace Lasting peace to the nation of Israel. Lasting peace to the nation of Israel. He was very instrumental in that. And so the enemies were no longer coming in and oppressing them. You know, even today, even today, one of the most damaging things that can ever happen to a country, one of the most damaging things that can ever happen to a country uh, damaging, it's damaging economically, it's damaging for every aspect of society, is warfare. Warfare is, destroys the economics of a country, it destroys the social fabric of a country. And you think about all the countries today that are involved in warfare. There's, you know, so we say, well, the end of the war is supposed to be something good. But warf warfare in and of itself is not good. It's destructive. The very nature of warfare is destructive. And so if a nation wants to be prosperous, the first thing you need to do is try to eliminate warfare. 
And that's what David did. That's what David did in the land of Israel. He eliminated warfare by conquering the enemies. And then we have God, we have economic blessings coming in. We have economic prosperity and we have peace. And people are able to, to be productive and to be able to be prosperous and to be able to, to do productive kind of things when there's the absence of warfare. And so even today that's true. It's true today. So we have David. Uh, he conquers Moab. Uh, in uh, verse 3, it says, it talks about this Hadadezer. I don't know exactly who this is. Uh, uh, king of uh, Zobah. Uh, king of Zobah, it says uh, he had a border by the river Euphrates, and so this must have been east um, quite a ways, maybe from Israel. But um, after this king was conquered then, um, well, well, verse 4, verse 4, here, okay, so we have this coming into, into David's life, and so uh, he's talking about this king, Hadadezer. He says, uh, he took from him a thousand chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 footmen, and David hewed all the chariot horses, but he reserved for them, he reserved of them, for a hundred chariots. This is the first that we read of an Israelite king having horses. The first we read of an Israelite king having horses. God had told um, Moses back in Deuteronomy, I think it's maybe chapter 17, three things the kings of Israel were not to have. One of those is they weren't to multiply horses to themselves. And so during this time of prosperity, during this time of God's blessing David, during this time when David was defeating all his enemies, he's, he's you know, preparing the country to be prosperous and productive, eliminating warfare. He saves, he saves um, horses for a hundred chariots. And if you were an Israelite at that time, if you were an Israelite at that time, and you were even maybe a priest, and you were familiar with the law, and you would know what David did, you probably wouldn't label it as you probably wouldn't have labeled that as a sin. You probably wouldn't have labeled that as a bad thing for David. Look at all God was doing in his life and look how God was prospering him and all the battles he went to. What does it matter if he kept a hundred chariots for himself? It doesn't seem like this raised the red flag for anybody in Israel that he kept a few chariots for himself. Well, we go on into um, uh, later in the chapter, Syria was conquered, the children of Ammon were conquered, Amalek was conquered, and um, lots and lots and lots of uh, conquests through this time.
David was a tremendous warrior. He was also a tremendous organizer. He was able to organize, put people, the right people in the right positions and make everything work right for him. He was, he was just a master of this. It says uh, in verse, chapter 8, verse 15, David reigned over all Israel, executed a justice and judgment unto all his people. He put Joab in as uh, captain of the host. He had Zadok um, as priest, Ahimelech as priest. Um, Benaniah, the son of uh, Jehoiada, was over, you know, he had over people. And uh, he put some of his own sons in as chief rulers. Um, one translation would say that they were, came in as, as priests. And so I'm not sure how that worked because David was not in the, David was not really a Levite. So I'm not sure how it worked that his sons were priests. But uh, it says they were chief rulers here. So David was tremendous at what he did. Uh, the other thing that we have coming through here is, um, I think it might be in, in chapter 10. Uh, if you look at the land of Israel, a map of the land of Israel today, it's just like it was in Bible times, you know. So land of Israel is kind of a narrow uh, piece of property, a narrow land, only about... 50 or 70 miles wide and maybe 150 miles the other way. It's not a big property, not a big land. But it sits between the Mediterranean Sea and a big desert. And, and to the east of Israel, you have great uh, nations, large civilizations. Babylon, Ur of the Chaldees was there east of Israel where uh, Abraham came from. To the west of Israel, you have Egypt, and to the south of Israel, Egypt and um, Greece, and large civilizations there. But here is the thing with the nation of Israel. So Israel sits between the Mediterranean Sea and a big desert. Uh, all, of, all of world trade in the Bible times, not, it's not that way today, but all of world trade in Bible times needed to pass through the land of Israel. Sometimes I think I should do a whole message sometime on the geology and the <laughs> of the land of Israel. It is a one and only kind of country in the whole world. There are features in the land of Israel that are unique to that country that you don't find anywhere else in any other country in the world. And so you have, this, you have Israel, this narrow land, and all trade all world trade needed to pass through the land of Israel. And that is why in the history of the world there have been more wars fought in the land of Israel than any other place in the world. Because everybody wanted to control world trade. And you did that by conquering and owning and being the king of Israel. It's not as much that way today because we can trade other ways besides just walking with a bunch of camels or donkeys. But David, David in, as he defeated his enemies and, de and conquered the land, he was able to expand 
the territory of Israel from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. He enlarged Israel, the space of Israel, the footprint of Israel, 10 times during his reign. And it also put him in control of all world trade. And when you read through Second uh, Kings, you talk, when, when we look through Solomon's life, and, and David did this too, but it talks about it a little bit more with Solomon's life. Uh, David and Solomon set up toll booths on these trade routes, and all world trade needed to go through their toll booths. They needed to go through their toll booths and pay toll for what they were bringing through there. And this was a tremendous source of wealth for Israel. It was a tremendous source of wealth. And so Solomon did the same thing. And so, again, in Bible times, if you, if you controlled the land of Israel, you also controlled world trade. And that put you in a position of making money. And so as a nation, David was able to provide very well economically for the nation of Israel. And uh, Israel became wealthy under the reigns of David and Solomon. And part of it came from the trade that they were able to monitor during that time. Now, not only did they have the toll booths, but as, as the merchants came through the land of Israel, they were also buying and selling to the merchants. And, and it's this way today, too. You know, if all of us would take our extra money and put it in savings and not spend it, our country would soon go into a major recession. Buying and selling is an excellent way to stimulate an economy and to make money, and it was that way in Bible times too. And so as the traders walked through, came through the land of Israel, uh, trading whatever they had, uh, the Israelites were also able to buy and sell with them, and that was also a means of, of generating wealth. And so now you think about the, the reign of David and the, especially the reign of David and Solomon. So you have the absence of warfare, at least toward the end of, of this 17 year reign. You have the absence of warfare. You have David controlling the trade, world trade. And you know, just a lot of things were going for David. We find um, um, several times uh, kind of a this is actually kind of a, it's, it's, we find it several times here in this passage that, um, okay, chapter 8, verse, let me just look at chapter 8, verse um, 6. Chapter 8, verse 6. Um, a phrase that we find several times, and the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. We find that again in verse 14. I think it's verse 14. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. Everywhere he went. Uh, the phrase would indicate that God blessed everything that David did. David was tremendously successful as a leader. You know, I, I, you, you, we look at David during this, these 17 years, um, and we, you know, God was blessing him, and God was directing him, and, and David was in tune with the Lord. We have numerous psalms that were written during this time. And then we kind of forget about the years that he was running from Saul. But I believe those years were actually preparation for what he's doing today, for what he was doing during those times. They were preparation for him. If nothing else, he was able to, in the, in the wilderness, he was able to put an army together 
that we find was still with him later in his life when he was at warfare with Absalom. These men were still with him. And um, so David was able to put some things together there that were a tremendous uh, blessing for the nation of Israel. I'd just like to, I'd like to, to end, and I don't want to end in a negative way, but I want to end with us looking at some red flags that had come up during this time that later came back to haunt David. One of those, we talked about it earlier, the horses. The horses. God had told Moses the kings of Israel were not to multiply to themselves horses. If the kings had horses, they were going to depend on the horses instead of the Lord when they go to battle. God didn't want that. God wanted them to depend on him. And David was excellent with that as he began his reign in Israel. He was excellent with that. He inquired of the Lord. The Lord blessed him wherever he went. We don't read of David having horses when he was conquering Moab and the Ammonites and the other people. He didn't have horses. And yet he was very successful in battle. The other thing that, that uh, Moses said that the kings of Israel were not to have is riches. And David was a rich king. David was rich uh, in... Chapter, I think it's in chapter 7. And I'm not sure if chapter 7 quite fits in chronologically here with the other chapters here. But we have David here talking to, we have David here talking to Nathan the prophet. And, da and uh, David says to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. David was rich. He had built himself a magnificent house. He said, I dwell in a house of cedar, probably the most, one of the most expensive building materials he could make a house with, you know, cedar. House of cedar. David had lots of money and he used it. He spent a lot of it on himself. But he also had this desire to build the house, of, uh, house for the Lord. And so that was a very noble idea. The third, part, the third part that David violated should have raised some red flags for the children of Israel. It says David also multiplied to himself wives. You go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. So David went up thither and his two wives. One was Naboth's wife, Abigail. The other was Ahinoam. David had two wives. Go to chapter 3. Go to chapter 3, 
verse 2. And unto David were sons born in Hebron. This is Hebron, not Israel. This was when he first became king. And unto David were sons born in Hebron, his firstborn Ammon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, the second, and the third. And it goes on to list 11 children from 11 women. Go to chapter 5, verse 13. We have this, this, some of these ideas coming through in other uh, places of scripture. In 2 Chronicles, or 1 Chronicles, there's a passage there that also talks some about this. Chapter 5, verse 13, And David took him more wives and concubines out of Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. So this was while David was king over all of Israel. It says it took him more wives and concubines, and yet sons and daughters were born to David, and it goes on to name a bunch. But in this setting, we, in this setting, we have 20 sons and one daughter. It only names one daughter. There could have been many, many more. And that doesn't even include the children from the concubines that he had. What was happening? What was happening with David's family? What was happening with David's family while he was conquering the enemies of Israel? You follow this. Let's, let's go back to the time of Eli. You follow this. Let's follow this a little bit. You go back to the time of Eli. Eli did not restrain his sons. His sons were wicked. They, they were priests. He put them in his priests. They were wicked. Samuel grew up in that setting. Without a godly role model, Samuel's sons were also wicked. And that's one of the reasons the children of Israel wanted a king because his sons were no longer following the Lord. Samuel anoints David. David grows up in a, I feel, a dysfunctional family. And we don't find David being the kind of father that he should be either. And then we find his son Solomon not being a good father either. I mean, you look at David's life through the end of his life, look at all the problems he had with his family. I mean, Solomon turned out, you know, pretty good at the beginning, but he didn't end well. And then we have David's Freundschaft, you know what I mean? You know, his lineage goes into the land of Judah after Judah and Israel separate. After uh, Solomon dies, Judah and Israel separate. So we have... Um, Jeroboam, king of Israel, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and so David's lineage then follows Solomon and then follows the kings of Judah through Rehoboam. How many of those kings were good fathers?
Here's something. Here's a statement I want us to think about. I don't want to end this. I don't want to end this on a negative note. But I want you to be inspired to be the kind of dad that you want to, that, that God wants you to be in our message this morning. Many men have had very successful careers, but failed in their families will tell you that a successful career does not compensate for their failures as a father. And I'm looking back, I can't believe, I can't believe in my own life how quickly my years of affecting my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren came and went. It doesn't seem like it's that long since I was a young man sitting back here in the audience with children on my lap. And today my youngest son is 30-some. I have, I do not have, I do not have the capacity today to, to directly impact my children. We have an older couple here at church. Just this morning, he told me that my children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren number 114. And one of the reasons that so many men look back on their life, even though they've had successful careers, they look back on their life as a failure when they haven't taken care of their families because they have seen how far the ripples go from a, a negative family environment or a positive family environment. The ripples of how you train your children will go much further than the ripples of a career. This couple from church has directly impacted 114 of their descendants. But those 114 descendants are also impacting other people. And now you have numbers in the thousands instead of even just hundreds. Does how you're being a dad really matter? I was just reading through uh, Paul Miller's book, Going Till You're Gone, and I uh, just appreciated the book a lot. (laughs) 
He makes a statement several times. He says, you cannot expect to be something in your retirement years that you're not willing to be during the prime years of your life. If in your, the prime years of life you've been motivated by money, you've been motivated by influence, you've been motivated by whatever, you can't expect that to suddenly change when you retire. Much less can you change your family at that time. The red flags that we find in David's life. He was a failure as a father. He accumulated riches and he depended, later on, he depended on horses. And so, I just, um, it's my prayer that we can leave here. David's life is a tremendous example. I, I'm, and I don't want to, he was a man after God's heart. He wanted what God wanted. He loved what God loved. He hated what God hated. He wanted to do what's right. And I don't want to, I don't want to cast a negative light on David in a way that shouldn't be done. But in spite of all this, we do have some things that came through in those 17 successful years that raised some red flags. Things that directly impact, impacted David later in life, directly impacted his life later, later, and we'll be looking at some of those too. Well, let's kneel for prayer.